This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 13th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The public choice concept of bootleggers and Baptists posits that for regulation to emerge and endure, both the bootleggers, who want private benefits, and the Baptists, who want the public interest, must agree. Bruce Yandel and Adam Smith are co-authors of Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics. What is the foundation of this idea? You guys point to Gordon Tulloch as providing some essential insights for uh, where this bootleggers and Baptists concept comes from. Well, Tulloch, there there are two important pieces, I would say, Adam, that we draw on, at least two from Gordon. And the first one is sort of fundamental to the whole notion of favor-seeking or rent-seeking, as economists use the term. We don't use the term in the book. We talk about pork-seeking. But rent-seeking behavior described by Gordon Tullock is a situation where interest groups try to get government to do something, and in the process, they use up up to what they might gain in the process. So it's a story of a special interest struggle. So what, what they might gain being what they would get were they had some market power. That's right. Well, you could take – let's take the example of <clears throat> corn producers and ethanol. The question, the theoretical question would be how much would be would the corn lobby group be willing to spend to get a restriction or a subsidy that would generate $17 billion over the next 10 years, which is what they got? And the answer is they would be willing to spend up to close to $17 billion if they're competing to get that gain. That was Tullock's basic insight. And then, Adam, I guess the other one that we dealt with was the trap – Transitional trap, right? Right. Um, uh, the first thing I'd say is I'm not even sure that the companies would be successful given market power. A lot of times these are just blatant transfers or subsidies by the government to where um, other competitors don't have a shot. But I think um, in an environment where there were no subsidies or there were other options, uh, they wouldn't have that. Uh, they wouldn't have that kind of success. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say one other thing about Gordon Tullock. Gordon Tullock, in a way if he pushed a little bit farther on his theory, we almost wouldn't have to write the book. Um, Not many people know of his later work on rent-seeking where he really tried to dig down and see why rent-seeking, why rent-seeking is what makes it palatable. And um, if you go through his his Liberty Fund volumes, there are some places where he really is almost at the point where he says, there's got to be a Baptist, there's got to be moral cover. Uh, but he just scratches the surface of it, which uh, I guess we're lucky that he didn't because he would have been, <laughs> I'm sure, much much more insightful than, than we are. One of the most creative uh, political economists to ever come on the scene right now. As Absolutely. Of right now. Yeah. now, uh, there's a lot of research that indicates that companies that are well-established, that have been around a long time and that are larger, are less nimble, uh, less adaptable. Uh, are they more likely than to be – uh, your bootlegger uh, in, in the examples that you point out? Absolutely. It's, it's political power. It's the ones that um, are on the scene, um, the ones that can hide mm-hmm. behind things like jobs, how many jobs they provide yeah. and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can go back to the notion of George – in George Stigler's work uh, in his economic theory of regulation – And he points out that those organizations that have already borne the cost of organizing have an advantage over groups that are yet to organize and will have to bear that cost. And so 
large corporations, organized labor, uh, organizations that have been on the scene and playing the game for decades, something new comes along like a proposed environmental statute or regulation, they're already on the tennis court, and everybody knows them. Uh, then an industry that hasn't been regulated before, they're still trying to put their act together. Has technology uh, impacted this uh, idea of clearly one direction or another? Because I can see it working both ways. That is, technology could allow newcomers into an industry to organize more quickly and, and thus maybe fend off some uh, regulatory hurdles that are thrown up. But also, you, you also argue that uh, ignorant voters are a critical part of, of this process of, of providing this uh, moral cover. So I can imagine those groups uh, organizing fairly quickly to put something new into place or at least uh, s- sort of uh, stymie efforts to stave off regulation. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's exactly right. There's, there's two effects that come to mind with me and they both involve Baptists. Um, it, one is that with greater technology and more media coverage and more decentralized media coverage, I think that's crucial, um, people can expose the bootlegger more easily. And I think we are seeing that. I think, for example, uh, the Salandra case would never have blown up the way it did decades ago without um, the um, kind of the massive wave of social media. On the other hand, well, on that note, on that social wave of, uh, uh, of mass media, you know, you have what's called availability cascades where we all become influenced by um, the norm, right, that's being pitched by the media. And that can kind of take on a life of its own and enable Baptists in a way we haven't seen before. So I think there's two countervailing effects. Yeah, and I think the, that is the, if we, if we want to call it the iPhone revolution, um, and we are yet to fully appreciate what that's going to do. We can look at Occupy Wall Street, for example, as a situation where young people could quickly get themselves organized and show up at the same place, same time. Um, if we look at environmental groups, those environmental groups that are truly interested in environmental outcomes, as opposed to celebrating the good earth, which is a wonderful thing to do, but some are truly interested in did the water get cleaner? Or was this all about giving some monopoly protection to industry? Smartphone technology gets those communications out in a hurry. So the whole process becomes more competitive on both sides of the, on both sides of the problem, as Adam suggests. Let's talk about uh, sort of the, the classic example here, which is the, uh, where the term takes its name, bootleggers and Baptists, and that is prohibition. But I'd like to focus specifically on what emerged after Prohibition, which is essentially the three-tier system. Is there really any moral cover uh, that exists today for maintaining this uh, regulatory system governing how alcohol gets from producers to the consumer? Believe it or not, there is. And there's um, the person who heads the, the wine wholesalers of America uh, I really have to tip my hat to because uh, I believe she might be the most amazing bootlegger that we cover uh, in the book. Uh, she was able to dig up a reverend that said something along the lines of, Jesus wouldn't sell wine to children, right? And so whether or not online wine sales really do lead to more wine bottles in 
uh, teenage hands is, is, of course, an empirical question. I think most of the work shows it doesn't. But the fact that you'd have someone uh, lend, lend credibility to the argument uh, literally from the religious right is impressive, I think. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. <clears throat> that is the imprint of prohibition with respect to the regulation of alcoholic beverages is one of state authority. Within a given state, you have the bootleggers Baptists working together. Most recently in the state of Tennessee, there was a controversy, an issue that went on for several years as to whether or not grocery stores would be allowed to sell wine. And you can imagine who was opposing it. Uh, some outstanding ministers were opposing it. The operators of liquor stores were opposing it because wine sales was a large part of their business. And so it's amazing, you know, there on the front page of a paper would be a picture of a person running a liquor store and the local minister, both of whom are saying, we don't think grocery stores ought to sell wine. Ultimately, the issues get settled with some compromises and so forth, but the point is that bootleggers and Baptists are working, in this case, not at the national level, but at the state and local level. Is what you're presenting here uh, really a theory or just sort of a a framework for thinking about how political coalitions emerge, uh, how durable they are, that sort of thing? It depends what you think of as theory in this day and age. I mean, if theory is sets of equations and diagrams and so forth, then I feel like the book's going to come up short. But if you consider, for example, Gordon Tullock's original work on rent-seeking to be theory, then very much so, I'd say the book is, is theory and that we're using supply and demand analysis and straightforward positive claims about political action. Um, but that said, I, I, the real value of it is, I believe, a conceptual framework to identify these kinds of coalitions. And hopefully readers of the book uh, will be more mindful of what's really going on uh, when we see uh, for example, those those two people on the front page of the paper. Right, right. It is a it's it. I mean, as theory as a <clears throat> theory is thought of as a thought facilitating device, and so this is a thought facilitating device. But it also enables one to think and to propose refutable hypotheses based on the theory, and to go out and gather data and test those hypotheses. That is, if one were looking, for example, at patterns of alcohol sales regulation across the 50 states, and you want to understand where rules are changing or have changed, then you could gather data that would enable you to quantify the level of participation by religious groups and so forth and, and test that theory. So out of the story comes refutable hypotheses. So in that sense, it is theory, and in that sense, it's scientific. One of my professors, I think probably known to both of you, Russ Roberts, said you need to watch out for when the bootlegger and the Baptist are actually one and the same. So what are some examples of that? Well, I would say a most recent one <clears throat> is uh, Vladimir Putin, who has become, uh, let's call it a preacher <laughs> in Europe and elsewhere, opposing hydraulic fracturing for the production of natural gas. And so Mr. Putin is giving speeches, rather passionate ones, saying how terrible it is for the environment to have fracturing. And of course, it's in his interest to stop that alternative form of producing energy at a lower cost. He was particularly concerned about Ukraine, which has huge deposits of gas that would be available by fracturing. 
So in that case, we've got a bootlegger who puts on the clothes of the Baptist and, and preaches. And I think we can think of other examples as well. Um, there are also some Baptists back in the background who are singing the Hallelujah Chorus in a way while Mr. Putin is talking. Maybe not in a cooperative way, but the background is there. For example, the Sierra Club's website has basically said the same thing that Mr. Putin is saying. So what he's saying is harmonizing, but at the same time, it is self-serving. And it shouldn't be forgotten that uh, Russia provides a great deal of oil for Europe. That's right. That's right. And gas. <laughs> you have a chapter here uh, called TARP, uh, Bootlegger Without a Baptist, and I, I think that's interesting. Uh, what made that the case? I, I can see a couple of options, and you can uh, chop up whatever I say uh, uh, this way, but you had something that occurred very quickly. You had a very a terrible problem with uh, the housing market and, the, and uh, arguably the broader economy uh, that emerged very, very quickly. And uh, the groups that would normally be uh, fighting for the same policy disagreed about who really was to blame for the problem. So was it just that the coalition just failed to emerge because it was such a rapid uh, move? Well, timeline and complexity are, are, are both key points there. But I think we should take a step back and realize that uh, bootlegger Baptist coalitions, successful bootlegger Baptist coalitions, are hard to come by. This is not an easy thing for groups to do, uh, which, is, which is a good thing, of course, uh, as we argue in the book. But um, we shouldn't be under the impression that all you've got to do is sort of find a, a preacher who will take, take your cause on and, 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 and suddenly you're – uh, it's money in the bank. Um, so noting how difficult it is having, again, the short time frame and the complexity of the problem and even more so having the, the floodlights on those banks right from the beginning where it's not just the front of the business section but the front of uh, the news section um, right there on page one, who are the interest, who's gaining from it, What's the bailout about? And then by the time in mid-March where you have bonuses being paid to AIG banks, I just don't think there's any amount of Baptist to stem that tide. And so remember, that's, that's what, a six-month period um, from, from rise to dawn there. So if I understand you correctly, an indefensible policy uh, that no Baptist would take on. Yeah, there was an attempt, <clears throat> I would say, for um, – the President of the United States to become the high priest on this issue, that is, President Bush, was coming out frequently and passionately saying, Western civilization hangs in the balance. Only the federal government is going to be able to save the American economy. Now, that sort of sounds like preaching, but I don't think that message resonated in the way that the AIG bonuses resonated in another direction for the average man on the street, so to speak. Um, and when the president speaks that way, I think it's more often the case that the ordinary voter is going to say, well, that's just president talk. I don't hear my preacher at church chiming in saying, we've got to save Western civilization as we know it. So how, how much does this idea, uh, this theory, hang on 
rationally ignorant voter. First, unpack that term, rationally mm -hmm. ignorant voters, but also explain how much does this theory hang on that? Oh, explicitly. I mean, people, uh, if people were uh, aware of what was going on, the Baptists would never be able to get in the way. They would never be able to cloak the bootlegger. So absolutely, it has to do with, with ignorance. That's definitely the case. Uh, that is, <clears throat> in the case that we were just talking about with TARP and the bailout, uh, that was an extraordinarily complex set of situations that the average one of us would not be able to comprehend, even with a lot of study. And so when we can't comprehend something with a lot of study, the average human being says, well, I'm going to rely on my instincts because I can tell when something's right or wrong, but sometimes the issue is so complex I can't tell if this is a right or wrong question, and I can't afford to inform myself. So the theory does rest on a sea of rationally ignorant people, which means that those who have a deep interest in the topic are rationally very well informed, and those will be your dominant bootleggers. The issue is, will there be Baptists who get informed on a moral side who will join up? And as we were pointing out in TARP, that coalition just didn't form. I should also add that there's a modern version of rational ignorance, which is rational rationality. This is Brian Kaplan's theory and myth of the rational voter. And uh, the way I see Brian's theory uh, kind of uh, converging with ours is that it's not that people are just ignorant. It's that they're passionately ignorant, right? They're, their ignorance doesn't go in sort of a value-neutral direction. It goes the way of public spiritedness. And so Baptists that can um, affect that, uh, can, can pull those heartstrings, can really tap on that public spiritedness, are going to be successful. And those were just not available in TARP. Bruce Yandel and Adam Smith are co-authors of Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics. You can watch a forum for the book at our website, cato.org.